All of us remember where we were and what we did when we saw the events of 9-11 unfold before our eyes. Notre Dame's president at the time is no different. In this episode, we chat with University President Emeritus Father Monk Malloy. He shared with us his memories of September 11th, 2001 on campus and its aftermath. Father, you've recounted the day many times, but I'm curious, what's, what's the first thing that comes to mind when someone brings up 9-11? I think for me, 9-11 isn't just the day. It's also the aftermath. Let's talk about the day itself. You said you were preparing for meetings, and like a lot of people, you were told to turn on the TV. Talk to me more about that. I think the, the thing, what, what, what stood out about 9-11 was the reality of television. We could see over and over again what had taken place from different angles. And you could see uh, the impact it had immediately on a lot of people. They're covered with ash. They're running away. Uh, we saw some of the dead bodies right away. And they were clear. They, they tried to prevent scenes of the people jumping from the towers. Uh, so that, that was a big part of it, I think. The reality of television meant that it was something available across the world almost instantaneously. I think when we, we watched all the planes come out of the sky until there was no more planes flying except military ones, that was a big thing. Uh, how many people ever expected that to happen? And then for me, um, just watching the reaction of different parts of the Notre Dame community uh, we knew that some would be affected directly by, by the loss of family members. But it was really the fear and uncertainty of what was happening next. I mean, was the plane in Pennsylvania the last one? It wasn't until all the planes came down that we could be pretty sure that that was the case. And then we had military planes flying overhead. And what the heck they would have done, I don't know. But mm -hmm. it was a whole sense uh, that until everything settled down, anything was possible. When do you think, when did that transition happen? I mean, how long do you think it was before you realized that the community needed to gather in some way? <laughs> the answer, of course, is what does Notre Dame do anytime it has a question? When we start something, when we end something, when somebody dies in an accident, uh, when we want to dedicate something, we have a mass. Whether people are Catholic or not, we just, that's just what we do instinctively. So my first thought when I got everybody together was we're going to have a mass. I didn't have any idea how many people would show up or when we said build uh, a place uh, by, the, by the flagpole, uh, but also uh, a stand where the choirs could be. How many people are going to be in the choir? I had no idea. It was like 300. Um, and then we want to make sure we had uh, emergency personnel around in case they were needed in order to control the crowd and all that sort of thing. So what I knew was, in a time of difficulty, Notre Dame people instinctively pull their talents. Just like we saw during COVID time last year, people did stuff they weren't used to doing because that's what you do when you're part of a big family. So that's how I, that's how I remember that day. I was utterly confident, even though I wasn't directly involved in every aspect of the planning, I, in a sense, empowered people to do what you think is the right thing to do.
And more or less, it worked really well. That moment during the mass when people were linking arms, what was your reaction as you saw it unfolding? I said, that's perfect. A perfect uh, gesture, more intimate, more protective, more we're in this together than simply holding hands. And I guess that's, I mean, in the Lord's prayer, holding hands is a way of saying the same thing, but less dramatically. So I think that's what it said. What was even more amazing to me was 10 years later, when I mentioned it, Father Jenkins asked me to preach on that occasion. And the other thing that happened 10 years later, I know you're trying to talk about the day, but what happened 10 years later was people said, well, we're going to go down to the grotto uh, with candles on. Maybe a few will want to go along. I was down there for an hour and 15 minutes, and people with candles were coming by for an hour and 15 minutes, hmm. quietly. It was just the most amazing thing. So that was a, a, an expanded version of what I saw happening on the occasion itself. The other thing that happened, nobody left at the end of the Mass. They just sat there. I felt like I should have gone out and say, it's over. Uh, but that they didn't know what to do next. But it was also comforting. It was a nice day. It was nice to sit out. But I think it was comforting to be in the company of one another. And then gradually uh, the crowd dissipated, but it took a while. My experience of young people, especially the students, would be that most of them have known that many people that died. I often ask them, how, your peer group, how many people? Well, maybe somebody died in a car accident or somebody took their own life. But it's unusual. They know a grandparent or an elderly uncle or aunt or somebody. But all of a sudden to be faced with this reality of wholesale death. And also to not only be faced with it, but see it over and over and over again. And then you see all these families putting up notes of missing loved ones with heartfelt intentions. I think all of that definitely, if you watched it, had a big impact emotionally on everybody. Uh, yeah. Yeah, so all of these things I think were entwined. And then what are you going to do after you call off school? Then you have a mess, you got to eat, but then who are you going to talk to? Or, or Most people, I think, went back, went back to watching more television. And in the meantime, as you said, you were checking to make sure that families of students were accounted for, and you got some sense of that. T take me inside that a little bit. H how did you go about that? Who was involved, and, and what did you find out? The big, the most important group at Notre Dame was the Alumni Association. I imagined, because of the nature of the World Trade Centers, that we would have a lot of parents or brothers or sisters or whatever who might be working there. Fortunately, in some sense, we didn't have as many as might have happened. But eventually, everybody was touched. I, I knew a number of people who lost a loved one. And then I visited the, the memorial and the museum several different times. And I always discover a name of somebody that I knew. Uh, so we did the best we could to find out who might be affected. And then we asked the rectors to keep their ears open. If it looked like somebody had found out that they lost a loved one, we wanted to know about it and respond appropriately. So once again, it came out of the blue. People rushed to do best the best they could. It was helpful that not as many died as I thought might have died. You, you talk about 9-11 as being a kind of season. Um, talk to me about one moment in that season, the Blue Mass. H how did that come about? Because that seemed like a really interesting confluence of, of factors there. I felt 
the reason I went to New York, I had already been to Washington for a meeting, and I had seen from a distance the Pentagon. I'd also seen how the city emptied out. My hometown, Washington, was basically empty. And the hotel we stayed in was for the Boys and Girls Club board. Uh, hardly anybody else in it. So I knew I needed to go to New York for my own purposes, but also to help interpret what went on to the broader community. And so I, I arranged uh, to get there, and the police and fire were going to welcome me. And uh, Sergeant Eddie Colton uh, from the 1st Precinct came out to pick me up. And he basically gave me two full days. He was on duty, but, I mean, most of their work was destroyed, or they were involved in a body retrieval. And Eddie and I have become good friends. He calls me about twice a week. Uh, and he married, got married here. And, um, but anyway, I met a lot of the police and fire uh, when I was there. And I said, we've got to do something. And so in addition to raising money for the families who've lost a loved one, uh, we decided to start the Blue Mass. Now, the Blue Mass originally was intended uh, just to, to recognize police, fire, EMTs, and so on in our area. But Eddie and a group of his colleagues came out for it and brought with them a lot of memorabilia from the event. And there was a big turnout. And uh, we, uh, I went back a number of different times. Eventually, the New York Police Department Sergeants Association gave me an award, I mean, me on, as a, on behalf of the university. We also uh, made a, some people from here purchase an, an ambulance, and somebody drove it out there, and we had a ceremony at the, one of the hospitals there that had lost an ambulance, and, and somebody was in it. Uh, so that was a big <coughs> event, too. So, in a sense, all of these things, in my mind, are all interactive. Uh, the people that were involved, the Blue Mass became a function both of our recogni recognizing the ways in which certain people put their lives on the line to serve all of us here, but also when we were honored with the people coming from New York, they went to um, a concert in the Joy Center with uh, uh, Bono and them. What's that called? You too. You too. You too. I, I actually gave a, a tour to Bono and the Edge of the campus, and they said, well, we have children of an age, somebody didn't want to go to college, so I said, okay, we'll show you around. <laughs> they never showed up, the kids, but anyway, it was fun. Uh, so anyway, that I developed a long-term relationship with a lot of these police and firefighters, and through Eddie, and I got to know them, and of course, many of them have suffered a lot from the, the cancers they've gotten from inhaling all of that rotten stuff. When I was there for two days, I was right in the middle of it all. I didn't wear a mask, nor did almost anybody else. In retrospect, it was the wrong thing to do, but it was a macho thing to do, I guess. So that's pretty much the way it went down. We had two uh, police officers that uh, I got to know there. One had been uh, in between the two towers and he felt that one was going to go down. He was he ran down the steps, outdoor steps. And as he got close to the street, he yelled, get out, get out, the building is coming down. And then he went around to the other side of the building where he had protection. 
but he never knew what one of those people left or not. The other one was in um, the hotel in, the, in one of the buildings, and there was a group of maybe six or seven that were among the last people to get out. And he talked about what it was like to see light coming through one little section, and they were together able, and they could see all the pipe, everything was bent, so they could easily uh, get crushed. Um, so they made it out. So we're up on top of the building looking down on the site. It was a real tall building. And I said, uh, what are you thinking about? He said, it's amazing that I made it out of that building. Then we went down, there was a kind of a temporary memorial. And a lot of the fire departments around the world that had helped out left their helmets there. So, and pictures of, then there were pictures around a kind of a square of families of, of police and fire that were missing family members of those who were missing it. So anyway, he by himself, he walked all around and he said, all I could think of was, was my wife and children leaving me a note. So there were things happened on that trip I'll never forget. It's just the, the burning, the steel burning, the smell. They had these uh, water towers and every time they would hit down, steam would come up. And then when so a body was found, they would stop everything, uh, play the bugle, and then put a flag, and then they'd carry them into where they uh, did the autopsies and stuff. Is there a moment where you felt like that season of 9-11 maybe culminated, maybe maybe when we played a football game again? Or when do you think the nation moved into the next phase and, and the university with it? I have a picture in my office over there of me saying, saying the prayer before the Michigan State game. It was our first game. And then, and then the halftime ceremony with the two bands and all. Uh, I think for me, that was the beginning of regularity. I mean, not that we forgot, but we were doing usual things, uh, and the country was. You know, unfortunately, sometimes we gauge it by what sports are appearing on the weekend, but that was one of the ways of figuring out if, if people were ready to go back to normal. Um, yeah. I don't think there was another dramatic moment other than that, I think for me, going back when the when the memorial was done, you know that that had an impact on me, because it's such a, it's just like the Vietnam Memorial in Washington. It really captures the moment. And then I went when when the museum was put in, been there several times. So all of that was part of kind of healing the memories and trying to make sure the dead were remembered and so on. Was there a more lasting change you noticed on campus for the rest of that year? Well, it's hard to gauge from undergraduates. I mean, in one sense, they're young and they want to get back to normal. And if they didn't know somebody, you know, it's like reading a Tornado in Japan or something. I mean, they knew the country was, uh, was seriously affected and probably their family was, but, you know, they got to go to school and I mean, all the normal things that you have to pay attention to. I think among the student body, those who were directly affected um, in terms of knowing somebody or having a, a parent in the military or whatever, 
mean, all of that would have kept on. But I think most human beings have a pretty good resiliency. And uh, as bad as things might get, you just go. We've, we've done what we could. We celebrated, we prayed, we provided material support. Now the time has come to, to move on. And when somebody loses a loved one, I usually say uh, it takes a, a year to incorporate that me those memories because they're connected to events like Christmas and Easter, and mm -hmm. summer vacation and important events in the family. And then after that year, that's not automatic, but I think like a husband and wife, it's when you've gone through the year, it's a lot, it's a lot easier the second year than it was the first. 20 years. Does it seem like 20 years ago? As far as the vividness of my memories, it seems like yesterday. Uh, in terms of all the things that have happened in the world and the country, yeah, it seems like 20 years ago. I, I think I've seen uh, D.C. and New York come back. And not that they haven't been affected by COVID, but a couple of different times over that span, and I get to those two cities a lot, I've been out and I've seen everything, more, even more than it was before. We want to thank Father Malloy for his time and for sharing his reflections with us. And we want to thank you for listening to this episode of the Notre Dame Stories podcasts. This episode kicks off our third season and we'll be with you throughout the academic year, sharing interviews and features of the life and work of the university. The podcast is produced by the Office of Public Affairs and Communications. I'm your host, Andy Fuller. Our music is by Alex Mansour.